you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I'm excited today. We have a special guest in the house. Matt, what is going on, my friend? How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I'm excited. So you have a unique story. You've also scaled up a ton within your business, and you've been in the game for a few years now. So I really just wanted to you know, pick your brain on the show and let the listeners know how they can do it too, how you've been able to accomplish so much in such a short period of time. For anybody out there that doesn't know exactly who you are or more of what you've been able to accomplish, do you mind just diving in like a 30,000 foot view of where you're from, what you're up to and and how you're getting it done? So yeah, I am from Rochester, New York, which is uh, about six hours outside of New York City. Anything that's like, I guess, west of Albany is considered upstate New York, but we are in fact, Western New York, for those who don't know. So I got my start in real estate back in 2006, right when I graduated college. I started with a four unit property, sort of by accident because my dad was kicking me out of the house and I was able to scale up to about 120 units of residential and commercial property since then. But yeah, I mean, where I started was by accident and that was kind of like how I lived my life. Like when I was a kid, I was very directionless and I think I was definitely a follower and I would follow the wrong people. Anybody that would give me attention, you know, some people call me a floater. I was a follower. So I would, you know, follow people that, you know, had self-destructive behavior and I would sort of engage in that stuff too, because I definitely dealt with an inferiority complex. My parents were like kind of, you know, lower middle-class people that kind of stretched themselves financially to locate myself and my brother into like a, you know, good school district. Cause we lived in the city of Rochester at that point in time. And so I was going to school in, you know, in an area where there was like really, really wealthy families, like kids, like driving Lexuses to school, like was their first car and that sort of thing. Me, like, thank God my, you know, my grandma and grandpa handed down a Chevy blazer to my aunt and uncle and then their old Chevy blazer. And then my aunt and uncle handed me down their older Chevy blazer. So, (laughs) you know, so I was driving this thing around, it had some rust on it, but you know, I kind of pep boised it out, you know, got some fog lights and stuff like that. And tried to like, you know, got a sound system and stuff like that. Isn't it crazy how much like as a young guy, how much we waste money on the cars at first? I like pimped (laughs) out my car at first too. And I'm like, why did I do that? (laughs) So funny. Yeah, no, I literally spent like spent every single dollar into tricking the car out or fixing it up. But yeah, so I mean, that's like kind of how I got my start. I didn't really know everybody was going to college where I was coming up from. You know, if you weren't going to like a four year Ivy League school, you know, Northwestern, Yale, Harvard, you know, you were kind of like, you know, second class citizen. You know, if you were going to, you know, a private school, then you're okay. Like if you're going to a state school like I did, it was like, you were kind of, you know, people gave you the stink guy, like when you, you know, told your friends where you're going to school and stuff like that. But, you know, I went to SUNY school and it was very, very affordable for us, but I didn't even know what the hell I was going to school for. I just knew so many, so many yeah. people, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. This is where I was going My, you know, my father never went to college and he was like, son, you're going to college. Yeah. Okay. Like, I don't care. 
you know those were the uh, days when it was still like like very promoted like even up till maybe like 2010 or 12 i still see people going to college now but it's a lot less like growing out just because mm-hmm. so many people don't know what they're going for or they go for something intentional and then they get out and they can't even get a job it's crazy yeah no absolutely absolutely and and i was sort of like a daydreamer for most of my life and you know this thing i was like okay i'm going to go for business because business people get money Get right. the money. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, little did I know that's just like, it was sort of like a general liberal arts degree. But, you know, I grew up in a childhood sort of like, you know, we couldn't do a lot because we couldn't afford things. You know, financial strain ended up driving my parents apart, right? I would remember, you know, sitting at the dining room table with my dad getting home late from showing houses because he was working at Genesee Brewery as like a general laborer. Yeah. And then, you know, showing houses, getting home late for dinner, And then him and my mom arguing about that. Right. And he was trying to get ahead. My mom wanted to hit home, you know, rightfully so. And so that ended up driving them apart, which ended up exacerbating the financial situation because you went from, you know, a two income household to two one income households. So I spent a lot of time like living in basements in between houses weird step parents and stuff like that, that were like, you know, just like psychologically abusive and stuff like that. And so I started like, that's why I kind of gravitated towards like, I need to be set financially. I didn't know how I was going to get there. Um, I thought it was going to be, all right, I'm going to get a business degree. I'm going to go onto wall street. I'm going to be like Gordon Gecko, like chopping on a cigar and that sort of thing. And like telling people what to do and just making money and that sort of thing. So I really, really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I graduated college and I was applying for jobs in 2006. The economy was doing fine, but companies were sort of peaking in growth and they weren't hiring liberal arts graduates with like general degrees that had no experience and no life experience. So I got my slice of humble pie when the only job I could find was as a part-time bank teller. And that was like eating a poop sandwich like every single day. (laughs) And so, you know, I was very verbal in my complaining about this, like this bad job and that sort of thing. And my dad extended me the opportunity to get my real estate license and work under him. And so I started selling houses. And that's when I started to develop my sales acumen. I was a horrible salesperson and really not good at closing business, but I was able to like scrape together about 16,000 bucks in commission checks. My dad knew exactly what I was getting paid. So he was like, hey, you got enough to buy a house right now. And I really am sick of you living here because, you know, you know, having an adult children live with you post-college is like not, was not, not what he cool. had in mind. It's not too sexy anymore, right? Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> so he sort of like forced me into, you know, looking for a house to buy. I mean, he gave me a deadline on it. So oh, um, it. yeah, awesome. so my first house, he said, you know, buy in an area where you would want to live yourself. And so I picked the one neighborhood that like had as many bars as like, you know, it's like, I want to be able to walk to the bars, you know, I don't want to get a kid. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to get a DWI. So, so yeah, so I I found a uh, four family. It was an expired listing. And so contacted the owner and that was like, sort of like my first thing. And like, Oh, this is great. Like, you know, highly desirable, you know, market and uh, being able to negotiate on something with no, competition really. So that was the first deal I got under contract and I uh, got what, under contract. What year was that? That was 2006. Okay. Yeah. Was that an adjustable loan that you got? Oh yeah. Subprime baby. Oh yeah, yeah baby. Right, right <laughs> at the peak of the time, right? Oh Jesus. Tell me what happened, man. <laughs> 
So yeah, so I couldn't qualify for conventional mortgage because I was in a commission only job, right? Sure. I didn't have two years of tax returns or anything like that. So well, they're also qual- promoting it so much then. Like you could, I, I don't know anybody that was actually like getting a conventional like fix mm-hmm. at the time. It was always, it was always uh, Ex- you know, exotic. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Setting us um, up for failure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, I have to be thankful, man. Like if it wasn't for a subprime mortgage, like I wouldn't have been able to get a house, yeah, right? Of a, course. Um, much less a four family house. So I got that and- Got to get in somewhere, right? That's the best start. Exactly. The interest rate was 8.8% interest at the time. I've had that. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like some, you know, some hard money lenders, like, you know, that I have relationships with lend at that rate. Right. And so, so that's really where I got my first deal, but I had to talk to like 10 to 15 banks. Like nobody wanted to touch me and even the subprime loan, right. They still wanted to see W2 income. So what we did is my dad agreed to put me on the payroll as like an assistant, an administrative assistant with a company. I said, we're going to get put on payroll. And then after you close, you're going to pay me back what you were paid in W2 income. So we had to get, you know, so we had to like, basically it was like, we had to get it done. Right. Yeah. I mean, when there's a will, there's a way I love it. Like one way or the other. And if you morally know that, Hey, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to pay off. Once I get this loan, I'm not going to do it wrong. I'm going to do it right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, make it, get it done. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So so yeah, I really didn't get bit by the bug until like I like closed in this property and like two weeks after closing, I had like 1800 bucks in rent checks in my mailbox, right? And it was a fourplex, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was living in one of the units getting 1800 bucks a month in rent. And so, you know, my mortgage, taxes, insurance were paid for. I had a roommate. I lived in the attic of the place that so there was like the old servants quarters. It wasn't legal living space, but you know, as an owner occupant, you know, you know, you could live in the basement if you wanted to. So that was like, sort of like my, like, you know, house hack was the first thing on there. And I kind of go into that story on the house hacking book that Craig uh, Curlop uh, put together uh, for bigger pockets. And so that was like, when I was like, geez, that was when I got exposed to like passive or passive ish income. And I was like, if I wanted to work 24 hours a day, which I didn't, you know, I only have 24 hours in a day to work. And, you know, if I want to scale and become financially independent, I cannot trade my time for dollars. So giving up all that time, way too much. Yeah. mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that's kind of like where I got bit by the bug and I just started like scaling from there and, you know, had all, all different types of like heartaches in the process, but I've always been, you know, scrappy in terms of, you know, putting deals together. So. Yeah. I know you've done a lot more than just that first deal, the fourplex, you know, give a, a wide range of some of the achievements you, you've hit as well. You know, I started doing like the Burr strategy before it was a Burr, you know, before it was even a, a term yeah. and that sort of thing. So the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, really where like my mind was completely like blown was when I did my first like million dollar, like commercial Burr deal, where that was, a uh, you know, million dollar office building in my neighborhood that I got under contract, didn't know how it was going to perform in the contract, but I knew it was a good enough deal and a good enough property where I could, you know, put together a deal and scrape together the money to take it down. So I raised $300,000 from from some uh, private investors and it was a fixed rate, you know, five-year term, 7% interest only. And I put together a business plan where, you know, these rents are below market. I'm going to push the rents. I'm going to put some smart capital improvements in there normalize expenses. And then, you know, the commercial appraisals are really, really good for the Burr strategy because you can change the business, change the profitability of the business, 
push the value because otherwise, you know, in our market in Rochester, properties typically only like appreciate maybe two to 3% per year, like regular, like residential properties. Yeah. So like four units and under, they're really going off the comps comparables in the neighborhood mm -hmm. in comparison to commercial. They're really judging that as a, a true business. They're not looking at too many others. They're looking at how it's performing. Yeah. They use the income capitalization approach on those properties. So I was able to push that from evaluation of a million dollars to $1.4 million in three years. And so oh. I was able to refinance the property, take my investors out and have a property that, you know, cash flow is about 40 to $50,000 a year. And essentially that's was like, all right, well, this is going to pay for, you know, my daughter's college education. Right. So now that's where I sort of set my milestones with, all right, this deal has to be large enough to like pay for something like that. And that way I don't have to like be constantly like, I have friends that, you know, they're chasing deals all over the place. Like, you know, doing like 10 deals a month on single family and maybe two family houses and that sort of thing. Like, I just want to do one deal per year. So yeah. that's like, can become my one thing. And that's one of like my favorite books that really, really inspired me to start changing my mindset about those things. So. It's so good. I feel very similar. Like I definitely connect with that. I got plenty of friends that are crushing it, staying very busy, but to add to that, it's like they really built the system. So tremendous respect to be able to keep up with five, 10, 20 deals a month. But I always go with the approach, hey, I'm going for the birth strategy, hanging on to these for the long run. And if I can do two, maybe four max per year, then, you know, we're usually at one to two big ones, then, you know, we can really set ourselves up for success and huge cash flow. Yeah, I really love that approach. Yeah, because I, I don't like to work. You know? yeah. I like to hang out with my friends and family and travel and stuff like that. So I don't want to do this whole, like I have friends, like you said, they have like, these huge systems where they're wholesaling, you know, getting like $200,000 a month and like, you know, assignment fees and that sort of thing. And, yeah. you know, I don't want to be busy and I'm not good at being busy because I get very, very distracted. I mean, I, I grew up with like super ADD. I had to, you know, I was on the highest, you know, regimen of Ritalin as a kid. So I'm not good at that. That's not my strength. You know, I'm good at like focusing on, you know, one thing and really, really drilling down into it. Yeah, that's good, man. I love it. There's power behind that. There truly is. And I love that book as well. It's, it's a game changer. So if anybody hasn't actually checked out and read that book, you definitely want to. Mm -hmm. Cool, man. So like, what was your next deal after that? And how old are you now? I am 37 years old. 37. And so you hit like financial freedom at kind of the early 30s, correct? Yeah, 33 years old. I love it. Do you want to just dive into the story behind that a little bit? I think that can be very inspiring for anybody, really. Oh, yeah, of course. So like I was going back to my childhood, I associate a lot of pain with lack of money and financial struggle. I also, you know, experienced a lot of trauma with, you know, losing my parents in my 20s due to health reasons. My dad, I think, killed himself because of stress. He had a heart attack in the middle of his sleep. And my mother, you know, was just you know, working all the time as a dialysis nurse and she, you know, passed away with a long battle with cancer. And those were sort of like the most impactful things that happened in my life to really get me serious about, you know, I need to become financially independent and sort of exit the matrix. Like, you know, that we yeah. get put into is to like, you know, this is the American plan, you know, go to school, get loaded up with debt, you know, go to a job to pay off your, you know, student loans, maybe scrape some money away for retirement. And I didn't like the idea of retiring. And then like, decumulating those assets over time. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't like to see my bank account like go down and you know, you can, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you can, and you can see people that, you know, have a comfortable retirement that like, you know, they have to penny pinch and that sort of thing. And I'm not a spendthrift by any stretch of the imagination. Like, you know, I don't spend my money on stupid stuff, but just having the actual freedom to do what I want with who I want, when I want was very, very important to me. And to achieve that at a younger age rather than an older age, because, you know, I did some traveling to Europe with my friends and family. And I saw all these people that wanted to travel to Europe the entire life. They retired and Europe is not ADA friendly, like the United yeah. States, you know, yeah. everything's upstairs and downstairs and that sort of thing. I just saw these people like struggling with this and really not being able to enjoy it. So I definitely wanted to be able to like, you know, essentially quote unquote, retire early. I'm not retired. I don't think I'm ready to retire anytime soon, but yeah. So I was thinking about you know, I had this on my like, like vision board in my mind, like every single day, like over the course of several, several years. And when I finally realized that achieved that, like, you know, FI financial independence number, I was like, I was not euphoric. I was actually, it was like, I went through like really, really bad depression because I was like, what is my new purpose in life? Like what's that next goal, right? Like you had that one thing focused on for so long. And then once you hit it, you're like, oh shoot. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So that was like some, that was like definitely a trying like three to four months, like after that, in terms of finding my new purpose and reinventing myself. So I read a book called the 10 X rule by Grant Cardone. And that really flipped the script on my life at that point in time. And I knew I needed to have a, a financial, like a, not a financial target, but like a target that was sort of like ridiculous and unattainable. Um, yeah. Well, some, I think it's just to start like thinking bigger, right. I'm mm-hmm. like next level stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of like where I shifted the focus into doing larger deals. And also I want to do more transformative deals, like in terms of, you know, purchasing vacant rundown buildings and redeveloping them to, you know, create positive social impact in our community, as well as creating, you know, economically lucrative projects for myself and our partners too. Of course. Yeah. And all the people in the area, the contractors, the agents, everybody, the suppliers that obviously you help turn those wheels as well and put food on the table, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So do you have a rental portfolio currently? Yeah. So I have about, it's like 75 residential units, mostly multifamily yeah. and about between like 30 and 50 commercial units, which are office space, commercial, like industrial space, some retail space as well. And which markets are you in for that? Is that all Rochester? It's all in Rochester. Yeah. In the city, yeah. in the city of Rochester, pretty much. Yeah. No kidding. Okay. I love that. And now what is the next kind of steps for you? What is the main focus now? Cause I know you said as you hit that initial goal, you know, several years ago, you went through a little depression phase of mm-hmm. like, Hey, what's the next step? So you read the book 10 X started thinking bigger Then what, obviously you started growing in some leaps and bounds on the commercial side, but what kind of goals do you have currently? So my current goal is to build a net worth of $20 million. And what I want to do with that is I want to set up a family office that will survive, you know, beyond my passing, that will be impact investing oriented with investing back into our community and having like a, you know, a portfolio of, let's say, you know, 60% private mortgages, some uh, certain percentage of real estate equity, a certain percentage of you know, growth stage capital for businesses that are looking to expand and also some seed capital for local businesses that are looking to get their start. And this is the thing that will survive beyond my death. And I want that, you know, to continue into perpetuity. 
long beyond my time on earth. So, and the reason why I chose $20 million was because if the 20 million can earn a million dollars a year in cash flow, then that million dollars would be allocated in that way and reinvested and continue to grow. And also will not be dependent upon people's like, you know, my lifestyle expenses and that sort of thing. It's sole purpose will be growth and investment in our community. That's so good. So more on the aspect and aligned with philanthropy a little bit and and really just more of like a for purpose business of giving back a little bit as you're turning around these neighborhoods. And I love that. That's so good, man. And I also feel like a lot of businesses, that's like the future, you know, truthfully, because if you have options of, Hey, this company does the exact same thing as this company, but they give back, they help improve the area. And it's like, it's the same product or very similar then who's not going to go with the winning team of like, you know, making the place a little bit better. I love that. Yeah. And in our community, you know, is in desperate need of, you know, economic opportunities and economic empowerment. So, you know, nonprofits, which are in the business of like giving money away and putting money to, to work for social issues, there's really not a lot that's around like, you know, economic empowerment in that capacity. And I've worked in nonprofits and I've worked in a lot of community service and they're constantly in need of, you know, raising money and doing fundraising, that sort of thing. And I really think that if you blend the two in terms of the, you know, capitalism and also social impact, you can have this really, really, really great marriage between the two where it's self-sustaining and is also sustaining around personal economic empowerment in our community. So that's what my vision is. Yeah, man. I love that. I couldn't agree more. Was there somebody in your family, friends, were you out on a walk or hike that, you know, you got inspired to actually go down that direction? So my mother being a dialysis nurse, like poured her life and soul into her patients. And she was an incredibly generous and giving person. And so she was the inspiration behind that. My father is a sort of like hustler, go-getter. My mother was just like more, you know, like soft, gentle, and generous person. So I kind of like blended the two because I'm like sort of a you know product of environment of my two parents. That's right. And but I mean, I used to do a ton of community service back when I was a kid. I just love doing it. I love being able to actually help people. And now because of my professional experience, my career experience in management, development, investment, you know, I find so much joy out of helping people grow from, you know, zero investment properties to creating a financial empire and seeing the effect that it has on themselves and their family. And they put the ladder down for other people. I know it's kind of idealism, but I do believe in pay it forward. And so if you pay it forward for somebody else, they're more inclined to do it for somebody else and also future generations. Yeah. And then it's just the snowball effect that just keeps on going. At the end Mm -hmm. of the day, it, it feels so good to see somebody that like you helped give advice to or guided in the right direction and they save so much time, they save so much stress and headache that you might've already gone through and money. So Mm -hmm. it it is a great feeling. I'm very similar, probably on the aspect of like your dad's side of like very results driven, direct (laughs) and like get things done. But as I started actually giving back more and, and opening up the heart a little bit to help out and serve more, man, I can't express how rewarding and how like just fulfilling it truly is seeing other people 
like get a property in like under contract in like two or three weeks from just helping them out, like from nothing to something very quickly when it took me my first deal, like two years, you know, (laughs) and like so much time and energy and like stress, like 30 contracts later, it's like, geez, man, (laughs) if I could buy back that time, I would, but it's just, it's so rewarding and fulfilling giving back. So I definitely align with you on that. That's awesome. 100%. So with what you have now and your goals, I love the goals, by the way, as well. I mean, 20 million net worth, and that should produce enough, you know, at least a million to be able to keep uh, reinvesting and circulating. Well, how are you planning on getting there? What's, do you have like some time frames behind it? Any measurable increments to be able to really hit the nail on the head? Yeah. So right now my net worth is at about $3 million. Now, people that are listening to this, like, don't ask for me for money because I'm always broke. If you, you know, if you're a real estate <laughs> investor or developer, you're always broke. Like, all of your assets are tied into like into real estate. So the goal is to purchase, you know, do about two million dollars to three million dollars in real estate deals per year. Yeah. So, and that combined with you know some meager appreciation and debt paydown over the next twenty years, I should be able to hit that number and start structuring kind of this family office the way I want it to be. So it's attainable, but it's something that's also, it's like, you know, that's almost a 10X, you know, when I started this vision, it was when I had a net worth of $2 million. So I was like 10X that. <laughs> so, Let's go baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And, and the process is like, is really simple is that, um, you know, I'm always analyzing deals. I'm always reaching out to commercial brokers because we focus more on commercial properties. Now the commercial brokerage industry is like very, very relationship driven. And, you know, so walking properties every week, talking to brokers every week, you know, doing stuff like this and getting yourself out there and putting valuable content and trying to teach people you being seen as a subject matter expert on a a certain thing and a go-to person on a certain subject matter is really, really important. So that things start to, you know, through these things you build, these systems you build, things start to come to like to you over time. And that's kind of how we source a lot of our deals is, is through that. So so yes, yeah, so, I mean, like I've tried the direct mail route on, you know, commercial properties, commercial property yeah. owners, typically, you know, they're more savvy. They have a relationship with brokers and like my property's cash flowing. Like I really don't need to like sell it to you at a discount or anything like that. You got a strong offer, really get creative to make it a super win-win. You know? Yeah. So that's where bro- commercial brokers are really, really important. So yeah, definitely cultivating, growing those relationships and you know, having a proven track record and yeah. being somebody, you know, who's enjoyable to work with, you'll get at the top of their list to bring you deals when they do get them. That's a good tip. You know, if you're a crappy person to deal with on a regular basis, you know, who's going to actually want to work with you? So really building that relationship strong. Do you have any other tips and guides on building those broker relations? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, starting from your research from LoopNet, um, I know that a lot of people label LoopNet as like, that's where commercial deals go to die, but there's brokers that have those listings out there. So that's a good place to start. And also, you know, talking to, you know, different lenders as well and forming those relationships. The thing is that like my dad taught me to dig your well before you're thirsty and you don't want to be calling a relationship lender with a community bank you've never talked to before when you have a deal under contract. You already want to have those conversations and relationships in place, even if you haven't done a deal yet. Because the thing is that with community banks, like that do commercial lending, they do things mostly by, you know, loan committee. So they present their deal to the loan committee, which are usually made up of other loan officers in the bank. 
And those loan officers' jobs are to shoot holes in that deal, right? Yeah. And okay. so, yeah, you want to have a loan officer that's going to be, you know, knows you and trusts you and likes you. So that's really important as well as the commercial brokerage end of things too. The thing is that with commercial brokers, you're going to want to see that you have some deals under your belt. So it's possible to get into the commercial world without having you know any experience, any real estate experience. But it's a lot easier when you've done like even a couple of like you know one family, two family type of deals, that sort of thing. You've gotten your feet wet because you know I'm a residential realtor as well, and I get phone calls from people outside of the area all the time with you know have never done a deal before. And it's just like, I just roll my eyes. Like, what do you think, you know, commercial brokers do as well? So that's the reason why a lot of them, you know, will usually go to their sphere of influence in terms of people that they've already done deals with, that they know, like, and trust to bring their deals to first. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more when it comes down to like your track record and also really just being able to talk the talk. I think there's a lingo, right. That is just widely used within the space. And if you can't catch up to that lingo and seem confident and bold with what you're trying to come up with. And also I say this a lot, but the broker's job, and I don't know if it's necessarily their job, but they, it's very notorious that in the beginning, building that relationship, especially if it's like a cold call type of thing, is they're going to test you with some you know, certain deals that might not be the best that they're having issues with getting off their portfolio, right? And it's your job as the investor to underwrite it fast accurate, you know, as, as close as you possibly can and, and show reasoning why, Hey, this is a bad deal, or it's not like the numbers are crap, or I can't make this work whatsoever. This is where it would work so that you can send that back. And after you do a couple of those, they give you more of the respect level of, Hey, this person does know what the hell they're doing. Let's actually throw them a bone here of what they're truly looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that. So how are you typically getting your leads now? Is it just all from the broker relationships? Yeah, primarily through brokers, other investors. You know, I work with uh, coaching a lot of like earlier stage investors and, yeah. you know, they're very, very comfortable in that, you know, one to four family area. You know, this 28 unit building that I bought and rehabbed a few years ago was a lead from another investor that was just like, you know, he was flipping houses, he was doing some buy and holds, like single family and that sort of thing. And he came across this deal and sent it to me. So primarily through relationships, to be honest with you, you know, I still scour LoopNet and CoStar for commercial deals and kind of seeing what's going on out there. But primarily it's definitely relationship based. And sometimes like, you know, our most recent deal we got under contract was a property in the MLS that I didn't even know what came on. And it was right next door to another property I own, commercial broker, <laughs> said, Hey, Matt, do you know this property next door to yours is for sale? And, uh, you know, I could have said, Oh yeah. You know, who's the listing agent? I'll contact them. No. I said, get us in there. You know, yeah. I would have never known about this deal unless this broker brought it to me, even though it was under my own nose. So yeah. being very, very, you know, relationship oriented is so important because yeah. I mean, that's the one thing I grossly underestimated. I was like a very like, you know, sort of black and white, like cold hearted, like person, like when I first started and very, very scarcity mindset with like, I don't want anybody to know my secrets, that sort of thing. And as you sort of progress and grow, and if you adopt an abundance mindset, then, you know, it's so much more creative to your growth than being scarcity mindset. So I have to say relationships a hundred percent. When I was first getting started back in 2012, 
that's exactly how I felt. I felt like it was hard to find the right education, not like the boot camp online or on late night TV shows, but like to find somebody that's actually truly doing it, that's willing to like open up and spill the beans on how they're doing it, right? And so very similar to you, like I just had to learn the hard way. But once you like transition and I feel like over the last few years, you start seeing more people opening up and being more just like an open book. There's more than enough pie to go around for everybody to jump in. And just like you said, like once you scratch their back, basically, then you know you taking care of them because he did bring you the lead, the education behind it. Then it's like you guys can circulate and, you know, the karma will take care of you at the end of the day, which is great. Mm hmm. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. But the thing is like where a lot of people get, you know, it sort of twisted is that they think like, oh, you know, one hand wash the other, scratch your back, I'll scratch my back. It becomes this very, very quid pro quo thing. And I know that there's this old saying like, you know, what have you done for me lately? I kind of threw all that out. And it, the thing is that it's important to have, you know, the right abundance related abundance mindset related relationships with the right people yes. that you know if you're if you're pouring in, if you're pouring into them, uh, value that, you know, it'll come back to you eventually, or sometimes they'll come back to you in a way that you never even like conceived it would, it would be, um, in terms of like, you know, the universe and God working in your favor. Um, you know, the alchemist is like another one of my favorite books. And it is like, it is kind of like that. It's like, you know, you put, you put positive things into the universe, don't expect things back in return, but if you're doing the right things for the right people, um, you know, you will, you know, you will reap dividends from that, uh, eventually. I'm, I'm so, so glad that you brought that up, uh, because I don't want people to get it twisted out there. Like you really should, uh, lead with an open heart of giving without any expectations whatsoever of actually receiving or getting anything back from that individual and just mm -hmm. watch it naturally perform that way. You know, mm -hmm. it will actually come back to you. It's just one of those weird things that, the more people you bless and, and help out, it always comes back tenfold in some miraculous type of way. You know, I'm sure you've seen it in your life as well. But yeah, it's it's a good point to bring up. I wanted to talk about the private money. And I assume with what you've told me and so forth, a lot of the funds that you're putting together is more on the syndicate side, correct? To be honest with you, I have a it's it's been on the private money side with uh, investors that just want a fixed rate of return. So I haven't really put together like a, you know, an SEC regulated syndication or anything like that. But, you know, what we have done is we've done joint ventures as opposed. So we're like, let's say we'll pay an 8% dividend to the investors and then we'll have some type of equity split that's negotiated and customized in the operating agreement. So have not done anything that's like a SEC yet, because typically where we've been dealing with is like in the sub $2 million range, where the SEC stuff, like the just the legal fees alone can be, you don't have the economies of scale for those things. But I do want to get there eventually and do those types of deals because I can get closer to my goal if I do larger deals, of course. So yeah, I was going to say, watch your goals come really quick after, after you start syndicating <laughs> and raising a, a ton more. So very cool. Do you have any tips, tricks, anything up your sleeve when it comes down to pointing people in the right direction with building the private money, you know, raising ethically and, and just building those relationships? Yeah. I mean, it's very awkward if you're asking for money. <laughs> yes. that, so the thing is, is that, and your listeners have probably heard this before, is you're presenting an opportunity to people to get something that is backed by a hard asset, that is backed by an, an operator that they know, like, and trust. 
you can't say that for the same stuff on, you know, the same vehicles in Wall Street. Which is yeah. odd, right? Because like the average American or whoever, right? Well, or the old school way is very natural to give up your money to a random broker that you don't know or anything that, that you believe it to be an expert that's going to manage your money and take these huge fees and move it all the time, you know? So it's really crazy. In something, yeah. a stock that we have no control over if the CEO decides to do something scandalous on news tonight or something, right? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, ends up smoking a blunt on like Joe Rogan's like podcast, yeah. you know, it's like- <laughs> Or tweeting you know. something crazy and then it's like, <laughs> holy shit, man, you just dropped my stock. <laughs> I know, it's like, yeah, I love Elon Musk. Like, you know, because, you know, he does stuff like that, but it's like, oh yeah. man- yeah, I can't That's, invest uh, with you, brother, but I like your approach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're a little um, too risky for my tolerance. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, one strategy that I have done, though, that's worked pretty well is, you know, a lot of people, when you first start out, that when they're putting money into a deal, they want to be in first position mortgage on a property. So yeah. I've actually converted a lot of hard money lenders through you know, having a track record with with them to provide equity for some of our deals. So if you've done a couple of deals with them, You've executed your business plan, paid them back, and you approach them and you say, hey, listen, I have something that's a little bit more long-term. It's going to be more tax efficient and you're going to have much greater upside. Then that's the way that I've used you know, that conversation as well. But you definitely want to be... I found that I've had to focus more on people that have a lot of money. That you know, If, if $20,000 is a lot of money to somebody, they're probably not your best investor. You know, they're, and, they're the most stressful ones, honestly. If they go all in, you do not want yeah. those. Yeah. So it's like kind of like the 80, it's the 80, 20 rule, right? Yeah. So, and we all deal with it. You know, we have that one property, for instance, that is just like, you know, is less than 20% of your portfolio, but it takes up 80% of your time or your team's time. So it, the same thing goes for raising money as well. So, so you definitely want to be focused on, you know, those people that have like, I call it FU money, right? So, yeah. <laughs> um, so they're like a hundred thousand bucks, $200,000 is really not a lot of money for them. And those have been definitely ideal investment partners. However, I do want to get into a platform eventually when I have a large enough deal where we can, you know, you know, economically afford access to people that just want to put a thousand bucks into a deal. And but would we that be quite... more on the crowdfunding side kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, probably like on the crowdfunding side. There's a platform that I've been researching for this when we eventually get a deal big enough that you know they have an investor relationship platform where you can actually you know automatically push out your K1s and distributions through ACH to your investors, but you still have to do the SEC work in the front end, and yeah. you know, and that can eat a lot into something very, very thick with fees if it's not a big enough deal. So we haven't gotten there yet. We'd love to do, you know, a 50, $100 million deal and do it that way, but we just haven't done it yet. Well, there's levels to it, man. There's levels. So, I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, a, a five, $10 million one, it's not a bad deal, right? <laughs> you know, but yeah, just like you said, the legal work for securing your investors, making sure everybody's good. The paperwork is on point for the SEC and, and so forth. Those syndication type of documents, it range anywhere from like 10, 14 to like 20 something thousand. And it really just needs to make sense within the deal. But when it does, it can be very beneficial to go that route and really start scaling up. So I definitely see you jumping into many cool opportunities in the future of, of just helping out more people first and foremost, but making a huge difference in your community and taking a heck of a lot more territory. So very, very exciting, brother.
any final thoughts for the listeners? And then I want to kind of plug in how people can reach out to you. Yeah, I think the last thing I'd you know, like to offer out there as advice is to you know, know when to pivot in your business. Over the past couple of years has been very, very tough to find and source like the typical deals, you know, that I've done, which has been like, you know, stabilized value add deals, stuff that you can get permanent financing in the front end, but you can add yeah. value over a five-year period and be able to return your investors' capital back to them in a refinance. So I've been, you know, we, the only stuff we've been buying over the past few years has been vacant properties. Nobody wants them. Nobody. So we've been able to source some like really, really interesting deals, purchasing them at a extreme discount to replacement cost. And when you purchase a property that's vacant, you have such a margin of safety in there yeah. that if you buy a 22,000 square foot building, that's, you know, that's like, you know, for $175,000, you know, it's very easy to like monetize 22,000 square feet to like at least break even, for instance, if you're just like, and be like, all right, well, I'm just going to rent this out for cold storage. You can, you know, you can probably actually cover your operating expenses at least. So that's really what we've been doing over the past couple of years, because it has been tough. The stuff that brokers ha have brought us has been like brought to us. And it's like a 6% cap rate, right? Which is never a deal for us. Um, yeah. <laughs> and this is a 6% cap rate on broker provided financials, which at the end of the day, it's a 3% cap rate. And I would rather... <laughs> yeah, I'd rather like, you know, buy something like in a larger primary market than in, you know, a Rustabelt town like our town in Rochester. Yeah. So yeah, so we've definitely had to do some pivoting and that sort of thing. And the same thing happened with us when, you know, I was buying a smaller multifamily and that really got overheated with competition. So I started focusing on mixed use properties. I noticed that investors were just like, oh my God, there's like, you know, six apartments and there's two commercial storefronts. Like what if one of those commercial storefronts goes vacant? I've heard that it can go be vacant for, you know, several years and that sort of thing. Listen, if the property's in a great location and you're buying it right, like you'll figure it out and you'll be able to lease that thing up pretty quickly. So, so yeah, just like, you know, knowing when to adapt, but you still want to maintain your focus as well. So, so that's definitely very important for investors to consider. It's so good. I think that's like the key ingredient for like an investor is or an entrepreneur in general is that you're constantly adapting. And, mm -hmm. you know, we might not have everything figured out right now, but as the plane's going down, we'll figure it out and we'll make it work. So have that mindset going into any real estate deals or, or business ventures and, you know, have backup plans. And I think you'll be all right. Mm -hmm. Very good. So Matt, how can people get a hold of you? Social media links, websites, whatever you want to plug. So to check out the projects we have going on right now, visit our website at uh, oakgrovecompanies.com. That's O-A-K-G-R-O-V-E-C-O-M-P-I-E-S.com. I think yeah. I got that right. <laughs> I used to be really good at spelling bees. So, but you can find me on all platforms. Uh, last name is Druin, D R O. U-I-N. And you can find me anywhere that you consume your, your social media content from Instagram to Facebook to LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn is a great place to connect with me too. So, so definitely if you have any questions and want to chat or talk shop, I've, you know, can make myself available for you. This is kind of like part of my job now is, as I feel my mission is to help and educate people and put them in the right direction. So I'd be happy to do that. I love it, man. I love where your heart's at. I love your direction and where you're going. And yeah, it's just awesome to connect with you and get to hear more about your story and, and what you got going on. I feel like like the listeners are only going to like really getting a piece of what you've really accomplished so far. So we'll definitely need to have you back to dive in in the future to hear where you're at next at next point and um, helping out so many people. So 
-hmm. appreciate you so much for your time today. And yeah, guys, as always, make sure you reach out to Matt. I mean, just tremendous amount of value. And like I said, he's really barely scratching the surface. Dive in and he's an open book. That's one of the biggest things I love about him. So um, he'll pour into you, just reach out and support him on things that he's got going on. As always, if you haven't hit that subscribe button already, I don't know what you're waiting for. You need to do that. You want to do that right now because it is going to really unleash so much for you and other people within your family, your circle. So make sure wherever you listen to your podcast episodes, hit the subscribe button for Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. And after you listen to a couple episodes, you will get the notification every single Monday. But after you're listening to a few episodes, just leave a review. Let us know how you guys feel about it. Would greatly appreciate your guys' feedback. I think we have like over 600 five-star reviews right now, which is just huge blessings. I, I can't imagine and very grateful and thankful to each one of you. If you guys want to reach out to me, you can always do so on Instagram. It's Brandon Elliott Investments. Otherwise, facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. And then if you need any type of credit repair done for you services, then you can check out creditrepairmobile.com. And then on top of that, if you wanted to learn more about our mastermind group for Credit Council Elite, really understanding how the banks are judging you, how to be able to fix credit very quickly, build up several six figures, even into seven figures in funding on the business side and personal, and then be able to leverage it, buying properties with credit, completing your remodel to credit, doing hard money lending with credit, free vacations, starting up Walmart automation stores, you name it, whatever type of business ventures you're looking to get into, cash is not something that can hold you back anymore when you are set up for success with credit. So I want to be able to bless you with that. If it is a good fit, you can check out creditcounselelite.com. So www.creditcounselelite.com. And we can chat more on there. But till next time, till Monday, guys, I appreciate you guys all so much for jumping in and sharing this out and reach out to Matt, show him some love. Matt, bro, I appreciate you so much. Till next time, guys, stay blessed. All right, Mr. Brandon Elliott, take care. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.